going to be talking on the podcast today with Jameson White of the National Alliance Public Charter Schools. But Jameson, before I get into it with you, I want to give you a little bit of background because you don't even know really specifically why you're on this podcast yet, right? So, um, so Missouri, I work in Missouri at the state level. And one of the things that we would really like to see happen is to have charter schools essentially in Missouri, because while it feels like we do have charter schools in Missouri, we don't really. And just a little bit of background for listeners and for you, Jameson, uh, when the law was, there was a law passed in 1998. And basically St. Louis and Kansas City were dismal failing uh, districts. They're not dramatically better now, but they tried to give kids some options in St. Louis and Kansas City. They both had desegregation orders and they created uh, a transfer program and some other things. And they said in these two districts only, you could have charter schools. But the um, authorizer, which in Missouri is called a sponsor, has to be a university. So they created this one little thing to let kids out of terrible school districts. And even though like 10 years ago, they broadened the law to say, technically you can open one in any district in the state, but if the district is fully accredited, then the school board has to be the sponsor. Uh, we haven't been able to get them anywhere else, anywhere else. And the mindset in Missouri is charter schools are for low-income students of color. They're to punish low-performing school districts. And all of them are this like no excuses. People kind of think KIPP as a charter, as their view of a charter school. Now you, Jameson, spent a lot of time, I happen to know, looking at every charter school in the country and all of their curricula. And I want to talk about the broader world of charter schools that is not just limited to these, what used to be called no excuses for low-income students of color. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm excited to talk about it. Yeah. And so just give me a little idea of of what this big project was that uh, you worked on. Sure. So originally the idea was to better understand what we meant by saying charter schools have autonomy. This was kind of a a catchphrase or perhaps slogan that we used to kind of work under. And the idea was charter schools are able to innovate. We're able to do things differently because we have autonomy. And I would ask the folks in my circle, what do we mean by autonomy exactly? What do we mean by innovation? And there was some kind of one-off question or like some one-off anecdotes. Well, this one school over here is doing something interesting. This school's doing something interesting, but there didn't seem to be a really proper landscape analysis of what was actually happening. And as a consequence, you often heard a lot of researchers or policymakers kind of label charter schools as this one size fits all kind of, it's just an alternative school district type school. And That didn't seem right intuitively. I knew from school visits that I had done that there were a lot of unique schools. And so we set out initially to try and figure out what the dimensions of autonomy were and then to try and code them. And we found more dimensions of autonomy than we could the data to code them. But the three big areas that we were able to get really good data on are schools that were specializing with their curriculum. So they were teaching something other than what we would consider the standard uh, English, math, science, history. For example, um, for example, we would see uh, STEM schools that would pull in a lot of like technology, engineering, uh, computer science. Yeah. We were seeing schools that were doing language immersion, where half the time the instruction was in a, diff- a different language. We saw agricultural schools where students were spending time outdoors, learning about how to create sustainable farming. We were seeing all of these really unique programs that were pulling in a 
area of expertise for these students that really wasn't either being taught in school or just wasn't the focus. Gotcha. And what that what that meant was that students that were really passionate about performing arts, for example, they didn't just have to wait for the end of the day to go do their performing arts class. They could do that throughout the entire day. And it meant that their math class, their English class, their history class, it was all infused with this curricular element that made them so much more motivated and excited to go to school. Okay. Okay. So there's got curriculum. What's the second one? The second one was teaching methods. So we think oftentimes with school that the kind of standard way of instruction is what we would call something along the lines of passive instruction. You have a teacher in front of the classroom, they're putting things on the board. They may be asking questions, students raise their hand. And it's kind of this back and forth between the teacher teaching and the students kind of writing things down or learning passively. That's not the only way to teach, though. In fact, we see a lot of different methods. The the Montessori method where the teacher primarily sets up these stations and the students walk around. They're kind of uh, what we call freedom within limits. So they're kind of experimenting with themselves. They're trying to really understand their own inquiry-based sense of what they're excited about. We see Waldorf schools, which are very involved when it comes to moving your body and acting things out, and they're learning through narratives. We saw even a lot of different pedagogical techniques around progressive-based learning. And I don't mean that politically. I mean that you would learn and progress based on the mastery of your content. So that, that meant that students may not necessarily be on the same point in the same class. You might have a student who's still struggling with uh, long division and other students are already, you know, well past that onto fractions or something. But what that meant was that students really had a clear sense of where they were going and they could kind of progress at their own pace and their pros and cons to that approach. But you see all these different methods and you think, okay, some of them are working, some of them aren't. Really need to figure out a way to kind of capture that because mm-hmm. surely that would be a benefit to the rest of society to know which techniques are working and which techniques are not. There's a third one. There, There is. So the third one was a focus or emphasis on teaching a particular student body. And that essentially means you have schools that, for example, would open up in areas with uh, high rates of teenage pregnancy. And they would say, clearly, this is a, a student uh, population that exists, and they are not necessarily getting the education they need, because in addition to their literacy and numeracy, they also need to learn how to take care of a child pretty quickly. Yeah. And then after they've had a child, they still need to learn how to care for that child. And so there's this whole kind of group of then schools that are serving what we would call alternative popula- alternative populations. Some of them are the dropout recovery space. Some mm-hmm. of them are serving students with who have, who have had um, trauma or have emotional challenges. Um, yeah. Some of them are even in also, areas with, yeah. Also like single sex, right? Yep. It's single a particular sex. type of student. And that doesn't necessarily have to be because these students are uh, struggling, but it could be a lot of people just choose single sex schools, right? There's single sex boys, single sex girls. Exactly. And actually one of the biggest ones we see is diverse by design where s- schools will locate themselves in an area where they're able to pull in kind of a socioeconomically and racially diverse population in the hopes that that itself will be a uh, net positive for the students in in that environment. 
So, um, so I, I, I still believe, and I stand behind the fact that Missouri, Missourians don't know this about charter schools. They don't know, for example, I want to go back to the curriculum ones. Maybe they've heard, but not really. Uh, the STEM, the STEAM, which is STEM plus arts, the classical, the mm-hmm. language immersion. I imagine that these are, I don't know if you cut it this way. If you look by like by suburban, r- rural, urban, small town, what do you see as like, the most um, common suburban type of curriculum. Do you know this? I mean, I'm not, don't mean to put you on the spot, but. Yeah. I mean, we do see in, in more in the suburbs, you start to see more Montessori schools, more classical schools, more STEM schools. Uh, what we traditionally think of as high expectation schools are actually fairly concentrated in urban areas. Sure. So and, high expectation, that's the KIPP. That's the, yep. used to call it no excuses. That term fell out of favor. Now we call it, right, high expectation. Yeah. And that is mostly the charter schools that we have in Missouri. Um, we have a couple that I would call diverse by design, but I don't know that they call themselves diverse by design. In other words, they're trying to match their neighborhoods. But for the most part, we have high expectation schools because for the most part, the charter schools are almost 100% low income, 100% students of color. Okay, so that right. is a group and that's what we think is of as a charter school. But some of these suburban ones, Tell me a little bit about the classical charter schools. Sure. So it's interesting. We just we just published a paper on uh, looking at the top 10 m- most common charter right. school models. And we looked at their performance in ELA and math. And what we found is that classical schools really dominated in both of those areas, and in particular with students of, of low income, which was interesting because there is this perception that classical schools might be more, um, you know, because it's a traditionally private school approach that it may not be appropriate for all students. And actually be finding that actually that's not true. In fact, they serve those students the best. And yeah. what was fascinating is that we're also seeing of all of the different models, there was re- research out uh, fairly recently on Texas that classical school is actually growing the fastest too. So it seems yeah. even without the this research, parents know. You're going to learn Greek and Latin and um, Western civilization, right? I mean, I, the, your basic classical literature, um, curricula. Yeah. And they usually teach phonics, which I think is a big part of why their ELA is, is improved. Um, as a country, for some reason, we moved away from that. Hopefully we're moving back. But phonics was a is a big core part of that. They also then do a lot of logic and reasoning as students get over and moving more into kind of rhetoric when students get um, into high school. And that means that they're really well prepared for college in a way that not all students are going to have that background. Right. Um, what about when it comes to STEM schools? One that I mention a lot is Basis High Schools in Peoria, Arizona. Or I know that they've expanded to multiple states now, but Basic High Basis High Schools often have several in the top ten on U.S. News, and their charter schools—they're free. Anyone can go. And tell me a little bit about what, about what you know, if you know anything about Basis. Yeah, it's fascinating. They originally, when we were reaching out to them, I thought they might have actually been classical schools because of the way that they do a lot of the instructions. But they said, no, we're similar in the sense that we're heavily focused on high quality content. We're heavily focused on really high high quality instruction and making sure that students master the content that we're providing. It's not just we're going to do a lesson and then it's over with. There's a lot of really intentionality behind what they're doing. And you see that translate then to the results that you're talking about. We see, we see that even in DC where it's one of the highest performing schools. And, Is that right? I did not yeah. know. Oh, good for them. And they're in New Orleans, I think too. And 
am I right that some of the teachers are more like professors and it's taught more like college or am I wrong? They certainly have that. um, What's what's the I hate hate this term for the record. What's the special sauce at basis schools because their performance is just off the charts. So. Part of I think what's happening is is uh, these schools because they have a good reputation they they obviously then draw a lot of students and not all of them are going to get in through the lottery uh they're located in areas where they're able to kind of pull in fairly socioeconomically diverse groups and i think there's also something to that that i think is probably beneficial having those students there together yeah but exactly what it is i think honestly a lot of it is just they, they have really spent a lot of time focused on high quality curriculum and teaching right. methods in a way that not all schools have the time or capacity to, to, to focus on. And then uh, you mentioned, did you, uh, maybe, I think you mentioned high tech high in, maybe you didn't, I was thinking about high tech high, they're diverse by design, but I also think they do project-based. Is that right? And project-based is something that I think also is gaining popularity. What can you tell us about project-based charter schools? Absolutely. And actually there's a network also on the West coast called summit which um, yeah. is really big into project-based learning. And really what the idea there is, students, the way that you motivate them is you make their education relevant to them. And if you have them being involved in the projects that they're that, that they're thinking about, you can still teach them any of the actual constructs or skills that you want, but have them apply it, have them work with it. And, you know, we often say it's one thing to, to teach somebody how to make a pasta dish on the chalkboard but if you actually put them in the cake kitchen they're going to learn and remember it so much better when they're actually yeah. involved with it and let them make mistakes that's okay that's part of the the, the, the process yeah. i think that's part of what makes project-based learning so appealing and um often yeah. quite effective i went to a project-based learning charter school in massachusetts once and they did a big um uh, unit on architecture. And by having the students design buildings, they had to do math, they had to do physics, they had to do creative work and art, artsy work, you know, and they had to describe it and write about it and do English. So by studying architecture, they were able to cover all the subjects in the way that was much more compelling for the students than, you know, walking from math class to English. So I do think that's a popular one. What about charter schools with a mission of personalized learning? Yeah, so these are these schools that really the the individual is going to be in control about the pace in which they're going, and also often uh, they have some curricular autonomy too. So if you if you have a student who's really passionate about math, the teacher might start giving them more uh, high quality math assignments. They might really push them, and you kind of get this situation where students are they have a little bit more autonomy and they're more in control of where they're actually going. And as a consequence, they're more engaged because this is what they've chosen. They they don't feel like they're forced in a classroom that's not relevant to them and they're bored and they're paying attention to the clock the entire time. I think having that ability to to choose your education really is beneficial for students, especially around uh, classroom attention and uh, classroom discipline. And so you've mentioned, or we've talked about a couple of networks of schools and folks probably in Missouri anyway, don't realize that there are actually like KIPP, the one that we know of management companies that run networks of schools. And you mentioned Summit. Um, Another one, which is really, really big is Harmony, which is in Texas. And that's a STEM school. Am I right? 
So how does, what is, what's Harmony's thing? I know they have very high performance. Again, there is, I just want to reiterate dozens of very high performing charter school networks who have like figured out an approach that works and have been able to scale it up. Harmony is one, right? Harmony is one. They're big into STEM. They also do a lot of projects where it's really hands-on. And I think because of their reputation for having really high quality teachers, they spend a lot of time on teacher pipeline, teacher training, and really trying to emphasize getting high quality Mm -hmm. math and science instructors. And as a consequence, you have a lot of students who are passionate about math and science, choosing those schools and then being really benefited by by those programs. And they've expanded really quite rapidly through Any idea uh, how big they are, how many schools they have? Off the top of my head, I don't remember, but it's several dozen at this point. Yeah. And thousands of kids. And then like Kip, uh, a lot of these schools are getting alumni. And I think a lot of cases, alumni coming back to teach at these schools because they believe in their methods so strongly. Um, Achievement First is another network that's based in, well, let me back up for a second because New York just came to mind. Success Academy. I think a lot of people are familiar with that. Um, What can you tell us about Success Academy? You know, Success Academy is often um, pointed to as kind of this, uh, the epitome of high expectations. And in a way it is like, you really do have these incredibly high expectations for students, for parents, for communities. And what we find is that not only are students able to do it, um, you you, you get extraordinary achievement in these schools that these schools, all of the odds are stacked against them. And in spite of that, they're doing better than most of the students around the entire state. I mean, it really yeah. is extraordinary, impressive. I think what people don't often remember is those students are not just being drilled with math and reading. They learn chess, they do dance. Yeah. It's actually a really impressive holistic curriculum. And yes, there's high expectations all around, uh, but students will rise to the occasion and you're going to get fantastic results as a consequence. But success is in New York City and it is more kids who are trying to escape, you know, their their neighborhood school and have something better. But um, what about I'm just going, pew, pew, sorry, all over the place here. What about rural charter schools? What do you see as being I know there's nothing typical, but what's the appeal of a charter school in a rural community? Yeah. So it's funny because we, we we published a paper on rural charter schools last year and their schools that they're choosing are very different. So you often see uh, schools catering to Native American populations, yeah. communities that have historically not been able to teach their culture. And because they've been sent to a lot of um, kind of American school districts, they felt somewhat disconnected and oftentimes, especially with the residential schools, uh, not by consent. But now they're really starting to leverage these this charter school mechanism to create their own schools, to teach their own languages, to teach their own culture. Um, yeah. And it's just been absolutely thriving. I would say another community that's benefited in the rural areas are a lot of CTE programs. And yeah. when we think CTE, we typically think, oh, it's, you know, you're learning how to fix a car or maybe you're, uh, you're learning to be a chef, but CTE in, in charter schools are really diverse. You have uh, CTE schools that are preparing students for the medical field. You're preparing them for entrepreneurship or business, yeah. uh, especially in a lot of rural areas. There's agricultural schools, there's equestrian schools. I mean, there really is just a wide range oh, yeah. of fascinating uh, programs. And if you're a school district where you have to serve all students, you may not have the resources to, 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 yeah. de- to dedicate to have those specialized programs. But if the students that are interested in them have a charter school, then not all students are going to attend. But the ones that are really passionate about that particular c- 
career are going to be able to get an education that's more tailored to what they need. So one thing that has been a real sticking point in Missouri is the idea that a school board would never in their right mind sponsor a charter school. Like it makes no sense in the suburban, in the, in the, not worst districts in the fully accredited districts. We have a, an accreditation system, Missouri, which out of 520 districts, 514 are fully accredited. So it's like it's like a non-system. So everyone everyone's fully accredited. However, be that as it may, in all of those districts, so 99% of the districts in the state, the school board has to be the sponsor. And that is seen as just like a non-starter, like a school board would never sponsor a charter school. And yet, how many charter schools? What's do you know the percentage sponsored by school boards? It's like it's almost half. It's like half are sponsored by school boards. What do you think's going on there? Do you think that school boards uh, get charter applications and they can't say no, or do you think that there are school boards who recognize the opportunity to offer something to a and I'm it's a leading question to a small segment of their population that's interesting and unique, um, and to add it into their portfolio. Yeah, I, I I think you're absolutely right about that. I think a big, big part of it that I've seen is the schools that are opening in these in these communities by by the school board are often actually consolidating what would otherwise have been mediocre programs. And so if you've got five you know five or six schools in your school district and they all have not a particularly good math like you know or not a particularly good music program, but there's a lot of students that are interested in music rather than depriving them of a really high quality music program, you create a music charter school where the students that would have otherwise been scattered in these five programs are now consolidated. They're able to really get a really incredible music opportunity. Students from other uh, schools can then leverage much more appropriate music facilities. Yeah. Instruments are much easier to, to get a hold of. And by having that specialized program, all of the students in the school district are going to be- are really going to benefit. Yeah, right. And same is true for STEM. I mean, like not every kid wants to take advanced calculus, statistics or physics. So I think if you consolidate that into a program and again, just making the point, there are known programs out there, known management companies that have been in existence for decades, 20 years, right? That often will come into a community and start the school for you. You don't have to do it from scratch, right? There are these models out there and people that can help with it. Um, But I'm just trying to make the point that there's got to be a school board in Missouri that sees this, like sees like why this is an opportunity to actually improve your school district, because especially almost all of our school districts have declining enrollment because the state has declining enrollment. to say, uh, look, if we opened a basis high school, and that's sort of a, a reach, I don't know if basis wants to come to Missouri or or one of these types of programs, people might actually move into the school district in order to have their kids go to those schools. A hundred percent. And we see nationally that there are particular types of programs that are really drawing a lot of attention that those schools, those particular models are growing very quickly. Classical schools, Montessori schools, Waldorf schools in particular. And if you are a community where you don't have that and you've got parents that want it, you risk losing those parents because they're going to go find the education wherever they may be that's going to meet their child's needs. But if you were to say, I'm going to create that Waldorf school, I'm going to create that Montessori school, that classical school, then you're going to get parents from other communities that are moving into your communities, particularly because that is the education they wanted and now you're offering it. 
Yeah, I think it's just a, an incredible opportunity because no one's done at Missouri. Incredible opportunity to be the first, right? Sure. Be like, and there is some startup money available, uh, right? I, I There is nationally, I think Missouri might have startup money um, through the charter school program where you can have some planning years. But I've had some folks reach out to me in Missouri from, I think, Joplin or, you know, smaller communities to say, we would love to have a classical school. How do we get started? And I'm like, you got to talk to your school board. We don't even have an appeals process. So if the school board mm-hmm. turns you down, that's what I would like to see happen is if the school board turns them down, which apparently is a guarantee, they could go to our state charter charter school board that we have and ask them to sponsor them. Just, just an appeals process. I just think that if we could break through, and I think if people understood like how many options are out there for charter schools, like how diverse the field is, how many schools have existed for a long, I mean, when did Harmony start 20 years ago? Yeah, that's it's, it's, it's been a long time. And they have like incredible science labs and math programs. Basis has been a long time. Um, IDEA public schools, I think they, they were in the Rio Grande Valley, but I think they are expanding at least through Texas. I mean, these are known quantities that a that a community could bring in. Um, what's your what's your favorite charter school model? What's your most unique school or favorite one that you've heard of? There's a there's a school down in uh, in Florida that they incorporated STEM and classical schools, and I thought it was an interesting kind of approach. I think they serve 100 percent of their students are. Uh, economically disadvantaged. Uh, I think they're in the top like 30 or 40 schools in the country. And blew my mind. It's the Archimedean Academies, which is this really great, like really a STEM plus classical, right? So I thought that was quite clever and fantastic results. And when you go go down and you see how those kids are learning, they're so engaged. They're so passionate about it. And I think to myself, I I wish I was a child in that school. I, I I, I would have thrived there. And to see schools like that multiply and expand uh, really gives you hope, I think, for the future of the education sector in the U.S. Yeah. And then there's always this kind of one-offs, progressive schools. There's NIOS, which is not your ordinary school. Um, I know my niece and nephew went to a charter school in Oregon where they had an outdoor school. There's Audubon charter schools in Minnesota. There's a lot of that sort of like, uh, you know, off the grid sort of, you know, talk, call the teachers by the first name, charter schools. And that appeals to a lot of people too. I, I think if you want to have that type of experience for your kids, a charter school is the way to go for that too. Obviously some really good CTE ones. And you mentioned this, but dropout recovery, teen parents, um, juvenile justice, charter schools fill that niche too. Um, or like co-located, there's residential charter schools. Yep. Uh, which also is a whole nother niche to be filled. And um, I just think it's, I believe that there are education entrepreneurs everywhere. They're not just in urban areas and they're in every state, not just the ones that are not called Missouri. I think they're in Missouri, actually. I think we have education entrepreneurs and I think they have great ideas and could start a fantastic homegrown charter school somewhere outside of St. Louis and Kansas City. Um, That's how these things got started, right? parents came together and had a good idea and they had an entrepreneur to do it. And, um, and I feel like, uh, Missouri parents have had to sit it out, which is really unfortunate. Uh, how do you have any off the top of your head, how many rural charter schools? 800 maybe. 
Oops, yeah, something like that. It's it's I think around 10% of the charter schools in the country. So there's about 8,000 charter schools. That sounds right. Wow. So that's incredible. And suburban, they, I would imagine that those sectors, suburban, rural town are growing faster than urban. Do you think urban's already been sort of saturated with the number of charter schools? We have been seeing kind of a, a greater push in the suburban rural and town areas. I, I wonder how much of that is also just natural migration as a consequence of COVID that we've seen yeah. the past few years. The other thing that we're seeing a lot of now is micro schools that are being kind of using the charter school model. We've historically thought of charter schools as being kind of um, a challenge for districts because they're losing students. But micro schooling is different. You've, you've got these small communities of that, that are often pulling actually from private schools or from home schools. And so you're actually bringing students into the public sector. Yeah, and if you look at the enrollment for the last year, what we're actually seeing is that most of the students for returning are going to charter schools. Uh, mm-hmm. And the charter schools is a very small sector. We're only 7% of the actual uh, public sector. And the, the fact that we're getting a disproportionate amount of the students means that charter schools are doing something to really attract those students the that have left like. to come back. Yeah. What about virtual charter schools? Where do you think they stand right now? I think the virtual sector, like all kind of burgeoning tech sectors, uh, they, they've got a learning curve, they've got some work to do, but I think they're on it. And I think especially now with with COVID, there was a lot of emphasis on the need for this. I think it's been yeah. properly uh, demonstrated at this point. I think there's a lot more interest in it. And I, I think there was, a, there was a cool school down in Florida that's using virtual reality, um, where students are kind of strapping on headsets so they still get to kind of interact with their peers. That's really interesting. I think Great Hearts is doing uh, a classical virtual program now called Nova. You're starting to see really different ways of, of utilizing technology in classrooms or at home in order to get those students a really high quality education. And as that technology develops, as those teaching methods improve, as the curriculum gets more honed, I think you're really going to start to see that sector uh, blossom. Yeah, I mean, the virtual schools, like the big virtual schools that were started, were often charter schools. And that was a decade or so ago. And I feel like when COVID hit, even in the charter schools in Missouri, the charter schools um, were able to pivot faster and get online Mm -hmm. faster. And I think if you're, if you're coming from an approach of innovation, you know, like, or if you think about like the traditional public school bureaucracy, it doesn't pivot. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? So they're like, we don't know what to do. We'll pass out papers and people can pick them up. You know what I mean? But the charter schools are able to be a little quicker on their feet. And um, certainly the big charter schools that already were virtual, I know that a bunch of people shifted to those for at least a year, right? So- yeah, a huge, a huge boost, especially in places like Oklahoma, where there's already established virtual schools. So a massive shift to virtual and what's interesting is, although we've seen some students shift back, a lot of students stayed, which meant yeah, that right. parents that, you know, chose virtual for one year, they're saying, actually, you know, it's not that bad having my child at home. I kind of I kind of like the extra time. I actually you know, I enjoy being able to supplement their education, you know, at, around the kitchen table. Or yeah. something. And you know, I think that that's a component that as we start to think about work life balance and kind of the new age, parents want to be more involved with their child's education. And I think. Yeah. Virtual offers them that. Yeah. I've seen uh, lots of surveys where uh, higher than I expected percentage of parents, I want to say like 42 to 45 percent, want their kids home like 
one to two to three days a week, like not necessarily full, full time, but not also gone full, full time, but they like to day or two, uh, that kind of hybrid model, which charter schools had been doing green dot rocket, rocket ship. Is that right? They were pioneers in that hybrid model. So, um, I think, I think it's really interesting because if we really let charter schools thrive, we really, um, you know, opened up, got rid of the restrictions and the regulations on them, they could sort of create something for everyone, right, in that model. But uh, but there's still a lot of fear that they're going to kill. There's so many things that are going to kill public education and none of them have. Right. It's just so funny to me. It's like we have universal school choice now in 10 states and all 10 states have public education systems. Right. So. Yes, yeah. it's funny. Charter schools were going to kill public education too. Um, but oh well, Jameson, thanks so much for coming to talk to us today. I really appreciate it. Um, I was thinking, like, how can I tell people about cool charter schools out there? And your name immediately popped into my mind because you know it's as much as anyone knows. So if people want to find out more about the study you did, where can they find it? So I published everything on the Journal of School Choice. It's open access because I want everyone to be able to access it. There's no there's no paywall. Um, and if you have any questions, feel free to contact the National Alliance. Uh, my email is jamison.publiccharters.org. I'm awesome. happy to answer any questions. And again, these papers are like looking at charter school curriculum models and seeing which ones are more effective, right? In, yes. In- and then also just kind of a broad landscape. So if you're curious to know what kind of models exist, it's really done a good job, I think, of uh, delineating all the options. Agreed. All right, Jameson, thanks so much. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Susan.